I had the privilege of virtually meeting Amy Lamb this past winter, and it was definitely a fangirl moment for me because I loved the work that Amy did as our past president of the American Occupational Therapy Association. Amy was such a visible advocate for OT during her time as president. I recall feeling like I was seeing her everywhere during her tenure, from videos to engaging on Twitter. So when she and I were discussing what topic she thought was most important to cover on the OT Potential podcast, it came as no surprise that advocacy was the issue on her heart. I know that today's episode is going to help you reflect on the big and small ways that you can advocate for your occupational therapy services. If you've listened to our previous episodes on the podcast, you know that there are just so many people out there who could benefit from our OT services, but are currently missing out on our evidence-based care. So here's to collectively growing in our advocacy skills so that more patients have access to needed care. Let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we dive deep into research and pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm the founder of OT Potential, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And today I am going to be passing off the mic to my friend Lauren Sheehan to conduct our interview with Amy Lamb. But before I patch them in, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. You are probably listening to this podcast on a free podcast platform, but to gain CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, our OT evidence-based practice platform. At the end of this episode, I'll give you more details on how you can sign in or sign up to take a test and generate a certificate. So keeping in mind that this is a continuing education course, I wanted to explicitly state our two learning objectives so that you can be thinking about them as Lauren and Amy are talking today. The first objective is that you will be able to identify advocacy strategies that have been effective in recent advocacy wins. And second, you will be able to describe strategies to determine organizational needs and solutions related to self-advocacy. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Sheehan, OTD, and it's my pleasure to be hosting the OT Potential Podcast today. First, because we're covering a very timely and needed topic, self-advocacy in occupational therapy. And secondly, because I get the honor of speaking with my former professor, Dr. Amy Lamb. For those who do not know Dr. Lamb, she is the founder of Mareiki and Me owner of AJ Lamb Consulting and an associate professor of occupational therapy at Eastern Michigan University. Amy is the immediate past president of the Occupational Therapy Association, serving in that role from 2016 to 2019. And she's previously served as the American Occupational Therapy Association president-elect from 2015 to 2016 and vice president from 2012 to 2015. Dr. Lamb is the past chair of the Occupational Therapy Political Action Committee and was selected in 2012 to join the American Occupational Therapy Association roster of fellows. Amy's experience includes health policy, advocacy, prevention and wellness, leadership development, organizational change, managing professional burnout and professional well-being, which is really the topic of our conversation today, and occupational therapy as a career. 
And I have the privilege of knowing Amy as a former instructor and really excited to have this conversation with her. Dr. Lamb currently resides outside of Dexter, Michigan with her husband, Nathan, and their two emerging adult children, Gabby and Josh. And she strives to learn new things every day in her spare time as her own personal occupations enjoys running, yoga, reading, and mindfulness. Thanks for joining us, Amy. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's really great to be with you today. Anything to add to your wonderful introduction? And of course, we cut a lot out. You've done a lot in your career, and um, thank you for all of your service as well to the profession through AOTA. Yeah, no, I have I have nothing to add. It's been a really it's been a really wonderful journey. I could have never predicted when I entered the profession exactly what it would look like 20 years later, but it's been a really wonderful ride and I'm blessed to be a part of of the occupational therapy community. Well, for our topic today, we are going to be really looking at the lens of occupational therapy self-advocacy. And of course, some of what has occurred in all of our lives over the last year has caused us to really look at probably our profession in a different way. We've been tested through caring for individuals with COVID in the workplace. In many instances, we've had to pivot our services to provide continued care for our clients in different ways. And just generally as a profession, I've noticed, I'm sure you you have as well, that we're tired. Burnout is high and continues to be high in many health professions, but the need for OT services, of course, is great and maybe greater even than previously and prior to the pandemic. As we kick off our conversation, we'll just cut to the chase here. What can OTs do to help move through burnout and continue to meet the needs of the communities around them, which is, you know, what we're positioned to do and and what we're so well-trained to be able to provide those services to our clients in varying capacities and in varying settings. Yeah. So, you know, thank you for the question, Lauren. It's, it's such an important one. I think, first of all, you know, we need to start by recognizing that the burnout felt by practitioners today is real and how each person deals with burnout and with the experience of compassion fatigue, moral distress, is, is different. And so some will put their head down and just keep trudging through. They show up every day and just give what they can. Others find themselves wanting to make a change and find a new way to be able to use their expertise and skills. And regardless of how people encounter it and, and react to it, it's really critical to recognize the importance of self-care. You can't pour from an empty cup, one of my favorite sayings, and many of us have tried. We we have to remember that we have to take care of ourselves first. And what that self-care looks like for each of us might look different. So for me personally, my self-care toolkit includes things like time with my family, running, a good long walk with our dog, using a gratitude journal to help me find some of the positive things in every day. And for every person, that's going to look a little bit different. And so whatever it is that builds you back up and brings back that mental clarity is an important part for you as a practitioner to engage in because it will also re-energize your work. 
whether you want to look at how to position occupational therapy differently in your own facility to enhance the quality of care to those that you're serving, whether you want to lead program development to support your organization to be able to meet a community need in a new or different way, or want if you want to examine new areas and roles or positions where you see the value of your occupational therapy skill set in more of a non-traditional role. So I think recognizing the value that OT has in the community, in organizations and systems allows us to look beyond that role or title that we oftentimes, you know, first see when we when we find things. And and I really do believe that we, in order to move through burnout, we need to acknowledge that that it's real. And that helps us to then acknowledge the need for self-care and then find that mental clarity to see all of the potential opportunities that are in front of us. And it's an important first step for practitioners because in order to engage in advocacy, we need to be able to lean into our knowledge, our expertise, our power, and our influence And for us to be valuable to others, we need to first see the value in ourselves and what we bring to the table. And so that's why I think that, you know, addressing these ideas around burnout is really critical to also then thinking about how can we be advocates for ourselves and our profession as we move forward. Excellent. So well put. And I completely agree with you. As OTs, we're so good about focusing on self-care for our clients and we leave ourselves behind. So I love the focus back on taking care of ourselves in order to really be able to approach any additional situation with more clarity and ease. You've done a lot of advocacy work for OT, both in the U.S. and around the world. As we lean into that need to combat burnout through self-advocacy, what have you seen just in your experience of sort of best practice? What's out there? What are people doing? What's effective? What have you seen as some of those strategies that can really help to combat burnout and continue to meet community needs that are in front of us as occupational therapy professionals? Yeah, a few things really stand out to me here. One is working together Two would be to have confidence in your ideas. And then three would be to share a consistent message or have consistent messaging. And burnout often comes from this incongruence with what someone is doing with what they want to be doing. And we have seen this across the pond, as our colleagues in in other countries would say, Burnout, high productivity standards is not something that is only being experienced here in the U.S., but really in many parts of the world where people are asking and demanding more of us. And so when we think about here in the U.S., as productivity standards have increased, we have also seen settings that have been successful in making changes to have more appropriate productivity standards. If you look at the issue of productivity from different perspectives at the table, such as the family, the patient, the practitioner, the organization, whoever the funding agency might be, you can drill into one pretty consistent commonality, and that is quality of care. And I don't know anybody at that table who doesn't care about the quality of care that people experience. 
So that's the consistent message that we as practitioners need to be bringing forward and driving forward with our advocacy efforts. Quality is impacted by high productivity standards. More reasonable standards will result in improved patient satisfaction, improved employee engagement, and improved quality benchmarks, and possibly potential funding within these new payment systems that we have today. So it's important to develop this network that is on board with you to want to move in that same direction and getting the support of your team so that you're not alone and everybody shares this consistent message. It helps to be able to provide a path forward that I think all players can get and rally around. And I think that this is something that we see happening you know, in many different sectors. But I think that's a really nice example of some of the things that I've seen really be successful, that working together, confidence in the idea, and then consistent messaging. So as a, as a therapist out in the field, as I'm listening to this podcast and thinking about, gosh, that is really one of the thorns in my side to be able to do the best work that I want to be able to do, like you talked about that incongruence. What does that look like tangibly? Maybe I get together with my department and we start to kind of formulate some ideas. What do I do with that information or that sort of rising confidence to bring the issue forward? I think a lot of our practitioners just aren't even sure how to approach such a conversation and what that looks and feels like. Yeah. So, you know, it's such an important question and thing to consider. So, you know, One of the questions I used to ask people early on in my career when I would travel and talk about our role as advocates was, do you ever find yourself venting frustrations to a coworker? And people would raise their hands and I would say, so that is one of the things that makes you qualified to be an advocate for occupational therapy. (laughs) So we're all guilty of it. We've all done it, right? But venting frustrations to a coworker doesn't make a difference. It might make you feel a little bit better in the moment, And at the same time, it doesn't create a result that's going to make whatever the situation is any different. And so I think when we find ourselves in those circumstances to say, to acknowledge what the conversations that are happening with your colleagues and also say, what can we do to make this better? And really try and look towards action because It's positive actions in different ways that will actually make an impact on your daily work and make you want to go back and want to be able to provide the best possible services to people. So I think being that person at the table that says, okay, what can we do about it? And then really working together to identify tangible solutions. Who's the decision maker that we need to talk to? What's the message that they need to hear? They're not going to give us a 60% productivity standard. Can we meet halfway? Could we say, you know, 80%? Let's trial it for six months and see what outcomes look like on the other side of that. I think being able to come forward with those tangible solutions also gives the practitioners hope that it we're moving on a path to make this better for everyone. But I think that taking action is absolutely critical. Definitely. And what's on the other side of that? What's the trade-off? So as I'm comfortable having some of those conversations or increasing in my willingness to bring some of that forward and really be action-oriented, what do I ask for in sort of return? Or what do I 
propose that might be the trade-off for, you know, if productivity is reduced, then this is what you can expect from the department. And perhaps, as you mentioned, it's in an area of quality or something else that kind of comes as a substitute. But I'm curious what your thoughts are around that. Yeah, I think that, you know, ultimately, you know, many of the payment systems are really looking at patient satisfaction much more closely, and it's tying into our payment systems in new ways. And we know that for the most part, most of the people that we serve don't want to be in the environments that they're in. They want to get to home. They want to engage in their daily life. So, being able to really link it to quality, I think, is is definitely one of the advantages. I also think that we can talk about, like, when we think about the trade-offs, it's really recognizing that I need to communicate the message to someone else in a way that resonates with them. All too often, we come and we say, I'm tired. I can't do it anymore. I can't make it work. I feel like I'm not giving the clients what they need. And while those are all true elements, when it comes to our advocacy efforts, we need to think about what is it that the decision maker is most focused on and how can I communicate this in a way that makes them want to get on board and that makes them want to make a change and motivates them. And what you find is that Oftentimes, many people will benefit, even though you needed to really sell the idea in a very particular way to the decision makers at hand. And I think we do have to be ready to make some trade-offs along the way. It might mean that you have to really work with your team to make sure that some of the more rote activities that happen in practice are being pushed off to the side and we're taking that time to really be able to help work with clients on what they need to do to get out and get out as fast as possible from wherever we're seeing them. So, you know, I think that there's lots of different things that come to the table there, but, but I think definitely taking those steps forward to action and communicating in a way that resonates with decision makers can help lead to meaningful change. So important. Yeah. We, we get stuck in our lens a little bit, um, which makes it difficult to tell the whole story, like you're mentioning. So looking at the new generation of of OTs that have been, you know, educated during this really interesting time as well, and of course, we'll continue to bring the profession forward, how do we teach, inspire, and mentor new grads and, you know, newly graduated OTs to advocate for themselves in the workplace and beyond? So that maybe this mindset and this culture of advocacy makes its way more regularly into occupational therapy sort of lexicon. Well, so it's interesting because when I think about this question, I also think back to when I was in OT school and advocacy wasn't on the list of, it wasn't on the brochure of things that I was going (laughs) to need to do as a practitioner Nobody told me that this would be a role that we would have to serve. And I think it's a little different for the people coming into programs today. They're actually driven by social causes. They're driven to make a meaningful change in the world around them. And that excites me for, I think, what our profession could look like in 20 years from now. So 
as educators, it's important for us to allow students to have experience with advocacy in our programs. Advocacy needs to be a part of our professional socialization for those in educational programs today and also for within our continuing education and professional development of practitioners who are in the workforce. Advocating for the profession in conjunction with our state associations on legislative issues around things like scope of practice, the licensure compact, positioning OT to be qualified mental health providers in the state, linking to initiatives of our national association at AOTA with participating in Hill Day events, whether virtual or in person, submitting comments for some of the proposed regulatory changes. Those are some of the more obvious ones that I think people oftentimes see. And as a profession, you know, whether we're educators, clinical instructors, or colleagues, as new practitioners are coming in to practice, we have to allow them the experience of challenging the status quo and teach them how to navigate navigate those kinds of situations. At some point or another, we have all experienced someone telling us no. And maybe we didn't get the job that we applied for. Maybe we were told no to a promotion or no to developing a new program. That no, though, was anchored in a particular time and place. And it doesn't mean that the answer is going to be no forever. Sometimes an idea was a little bit too early and the idea is a little bit more well thought out a little later on. Several years ago, something that really has stuck with me, I had a few new graduates come to me at one of our annual conferences, and they told me that they were told by their clinical instructors to stop with the new ideas, to put their head down and just learn the ropes. And then in a couple of years, if they still wanted to share their ideas, they'd be better able to do that. And as experienced professionals, we need to stop giving those messages to our new practitioners. And rather than pushing those ideas down, we need to help them refine the ideas, think about it from different perspectives so that when they go in to try and pitch an idea, they're well-prepared to be able to step forward to the challenge to do that. And will they be told no? Maybe, maybe not. But we can always reframe those no's. When I hear no, I actually hear a not yet or not right now. There's always an opportunity to work together and make the idea better and come back at it with another attempt. So I, you know, I'm a big believer that one of the things that we can do is really to work together to make ideas better and connect our experience with perhaps some of that newfound passion with people who, when they're coming into the profession and just entering practice. And I believe we rise by lifting others. And so that's a way that we can really help to empower our next generation of practitioners. Absolutely. We need those voices. (laughs) Yes. Definitely. As we think about both new and existing practitioners and look at the ways that we can best position some of those ideas that new generations of OTs are coming forward with and and our own, maybe that have existed for some time that we haven't spoken up about. How do we learn and what are the skills in identifying some of the organizational needs that you mentioned and, and the possible solutions that we can bring forward 
when we identify both client and departmental challenges and potential ways that we could bring those solutions to the table. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I think is important to recognize is that, and this is kind of, this is a hard one, but it's not always the best ideas that win. Sometimes, like it, it, it's just not the best idea that wins. It's often the best advocate that does. And keeping that in mind, it's critical that we develop our advocacy skills as practitioners. So what does this look like? If we think about using the same approach that we do in the clinic as we do when we are trying to solve larger organizational problems, to generate ideas and to be advocates to make those ideas become a reality, it's about listening, observing, assessing, and connecting. So in our organizations and or communities, we need to listen to what the challenges, concerns, and needs really are. And listen to hear what's really being said, not to not listen to respond, but to really listen and hear what's what's happening. Listening in a way where we can engage with each other, inspire others, and help people know that they matter. Listening to the patient experience, the family experience, the professional workforce experience, listening to what the goals and objectives are of our organizations that we work within. And then from there, really observing what is happening and connecting what we heard from individuals and examining what's happening in a more broad context. So sometimes there's overarching policy changes that are happening that we need to be paying attention to or many organizations today are experiencing budget challenges as a result of of COVID-19. And so that is a driving force, whether we like it or not, it, it can be a driving force as well. Or maybe it's new leadership that's come into the organization and now they're wanting to go in a different direction. But really observing some of those more macro level things that might be happening as well. And then from there, assessing how that all comes together and really of equal importance, also assessing how might occupational therapy make it better? Where are the gaps that we might be able to fill? And that's oftentimes where ideas are born. And then from there, we can develop a plan for advocacy. One of the first things that we really need to be able to do as advocates is being able to explain our ideas well so that people can understand them and remember them. You know, take out the professional jargon, take out all the fancy, help people truly understand what it is that we want to do. And that takes practice to clearly and concisely share your story and your ideas so that people can remember them. But I think it's important to remember that stories sell ideas and developing the story so that the decision maker is driven to act is a big part of that first step of advocacy. Second, we need to lean on the reputation that we've built in our organization and others have a trust and respect in you and your confidence that comes forward when you're bringing that idea forward will help them to trust the idea that you're bringing to the table as well. Third, I would say, you know, we really need to build networks. So don't keep ideas to yourself, but really look around to say who can support me, who can support me in advancing this idea, 
who can help to plant seeds of the idea along the way. It's difficult to move a big idea by yourself and you don't have to. It's good to work with others and it's really critical to get others to work with you on ideas. Fourth, I would say, is building that groundwork for your advocacy efforts. And so that means you need to understand who is the decision maker on a particular issue and how can you plant those seeds and leave those little trails as you're kind of thinking through the idea even to let them know, like, I'm on this. I'm thinking about solutions and they begin to start to see you in that way. And then identify when is the right time to pitch an idea. So I you know, the best time to catch somebody is oftentimes when they're in that discussion mode right before budgets are being passed. So, you know, after a budget's been put into place for the next fiscal year is not a good time to pitch a new program, right? So thinking about timing is also critical. And then last but not least, using your influence to show confidence and recognizing the power of words. So, You know, I tell people all the time, do not refer to yourself as just an occupational therapist or just an occupational therapy assistant. You are an occupational therapist or an occupational therapy assistant. Own that and all of the knowledge that comes with it. Similarly, it's also about showing confidence in your ideas. So it's not about this could be a valuable program. It is rather this will be a valuable program. If you have confidence in your ideas, other people will have confidence in them as well. And those are some really tangible skills for advocacy that we as practitioners, I know have within us because I see us using them with our clients all the time. We need to also think about how can we use those to move forward some of our big ideas. That's great. Such Good food for thought. Timing matters. Our words matter. All of those things that um, I think will be wonderful takeaways for our listeners. As we've experienced this last year together as professionals, as entrepreneurs, as educators, as students, what new opportunities have arisen for occupational therapy in 2020? to express and communicate value in some of the ways that you were mentioning, both in traditional and maybe in some non-traditional capacities? Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to go back into history for just a tiny moment here. Geraldine Finn, actually, like in the early 70s in her Eleanor Clark Slagle lecture, said that in order for a profession to maintain its relevancy, it must be aware of the times, interpreting its contribution with mankind in accordance with the need of the times. And the reason why I think that that quote has been so relevant in many of our years past, but also today, is that we have to pay attention to what's happening around us. And the world has shifted in so many ways. So if we just even think about, let's take mental health for a moment, whose mental health has not in some way been impacted in the past year? If we're being really honest, I think everybody would say their mental health has been impacted in some way, shape, or form. And the needs are great when we look at traditional settings, such as K through 12 schools or um, in our homes, on our college campuses, in skilled nursing facilities or older adult living communities where the isolation has just been crushing for many 
And I would persist that many of those needs were there before March of 2020. And the global pandemic just exacerbated it and really shone a bright spotlight on it. And at the same time, with that spotlight, we can't and shouldn't look past it anymore. The mental health needs, I think, is one area in our traditional practice where I can see a lot of opportunity for OT to be engaging in and really re-emerging with people around some of these, these things. Simultaneously, I would say that there's non-traditional opportunities in some of those exact same arenas to be able to, to address mental health challenges that have emerged over the past year. It's not only our children in our schools who have the growing mental health needs, but how might we be able to support our K through 12 educators and administrators? You know, those teachers want to be in the classroom with our children and many of them haven't been able to be. And that impacts them as well. They want to do a good job. They, they live to help children grow and emerge. And so how might we be able to support them? Or how might we be able to better design student wellness and mental health services on college campuses? The anxiety of stress and stress on college campuses has been skyrocketing for years. And what if we had an occupational therapy practitioner who was the director of student engagement and wellness on a college campus? It sounds like a perfect fit to me. So I see more opportunities emerging for occupational therapy in primary health care, in mental health across the lifespan, in wellness and prevention, in chronic disease self-management, community-based settings, as we think about designing environments that fit individuals and populations and their various needs that they may have, as we look at integrating technology into all aspects of practice, I think that's been an area that's been long overlooked in some ways by the mass of the profession. And I think that there's so much opportunity for us there. So those are a few of the areas that I really see a lot of opportunity for us to be able to really, you know, engage with. And as professionals, we can't wait for those opportunities to just fall in our lap. They're not going to. We can't wait for somebody to give us permission to engage. We can't wait for somebody to come looking for us. We need to go find the opportunities and we need to step outside of our comfort zone and go looking for some of these opportunities and positions that can really show the value of OT in new ways that we haven't really even begun to explore. So taking a look at a job description that looks, you know, somewhat intriguing to you and saying, wow, the skills and functions of that job that they have listed there, like those are crying for, for occupational therapy and they just don't know it yet. So using that as an opportunity to advocate for ourselves and the role that our professional lens can bring to them apply for the position, you know, focus your advocacy when you're in that job interview on how your skill set best positions the organization to be able to meet the goals and, and how they'll benefit from either hiring an occupational therapist or an occupational therapy assistant. Those are some of the things that I think we can do to rise to the occasion of what the current times and needs are demanding from our profession. And I think we'll be really astounded if we do some of that to see how much we can grow as a profession on the other side. So exciting. And there really is so much opportunity. 
Um, we need to, you know, as you mentioned, harness that energy of self-advocacy and go get those or create those positions and those places for us in the workplace, definitely. You mentioned previously about getting together in groups and the power of, of conversation and story around areas where we really see a need for advocacy. What would you recommend for therapists that are inspired, are, are fired up and want to continue this conversation to give and receive support around how to best advocate for themselves? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the first things is really just finding others who want to make a difference and connect with them and having a network of people with a positive mindset that don't approach a challenge as a wall that can't be climbed, but rather they keep looking along the wall for a window to climb through and to get to that other side. I think building a circle of people around you that want to lift you up and that will help you to make your ideas better. People who aren't willing to push you and kind of poke holes in the ideas because those holes actually help you to make the idea better. So you need, you need those people that are going to be committed to helping you make the ideas better. And then simultaneously developing some of these skills for advocacy that help to make those ideas become a reality you know, one of the things when I think about what do I want for our profession moving forward is I don't want a workforce that dreads getting up in the morning and going to their job. I want a workforce that is excited about the opportunity to make someone else's life better. And I believe that we have that within us. And I believe that we have all these advocacy skills within us. We teach them to our clients all the time in different settings. We teach them how to speak up for themselves when they can't speak up for themselves, where they're speaking up for them or right alongside of them. And so, you know, I would encourage people not to put their ideas in a drawer but to rather develop them and build that community of people around them that that's going to help them continue to try and move those forward. And then lastly, we have to be willing to step outside of our comfort zone. We just have to be willing to say, even though I don't know every step in front of me, I'm going to take the first step on this journey today. And we're going to work forward to creating that better future that I see in front. Thanks, Amy. I've so enjoyed hearing your advice today and can definitely tell that it's been a hard one. Advice that you've learned through much experience over the years. In this final section, we'll switch gears a little bit. And I'd like to ask you to put some of the advice that you gave us into a few stories as OTs were such storytellers. And just to help us sync all this information together, a few stories from your practice experience. With your background in advocacy, both as a practicing OT and then through leadership with the AOTA, we know that you have a deep well of experience to draw from. And today, I'd like to hear a little bit more about where your personal drive to be involved in advocacy has come from. And it would be wonderful if you could tell us a story of when advocacy really paid off in your experience, as well as 
like all of us, when you may have heard no initially and had to work through some of those those challenges in not getting exactly what you were looking for and how advocacy helped create a path towards getting what you needed. So let's start with the story of where your personal drive to become involved in advocacy came from. You know, it's such a good question. And my husband reminds me of this frequently. When I was in OT school in my bachelor's degree for OT, I was one of the most apolitical people around. And my husband likes to remind me that I told him he could have politics. I was going to go help people. He was a political science major at the time. So, you know, it's like you take that part of the world, like I'm literally just going to go help people. And what I learned quickly as I entered practice was that policy impacts practice every day. And it impacts our life every day. I mean, when we when you think about it, a stop sign has to be at a particular height and there's a policy that guides like what height that needs to be. And like, you know, all of these things that we encounter day in and day out are really driven by policies that are around us. So, but when we think about practice, who can be seen, how long they can be seen, for what they can be seen, when we think about policy from the regulatory side, like what codes you can use with particular diagnoses, I mean, it's all driven by policy. And every day I see and hear how practice is being transformed right now and how the workforce is being impacted directly, for sure. So, I often refer to myself as a product of the payment changes in the 90s. I entered practice and within my first year, I was laid off as the industry had a knee-jerk response to the payment changes of the 90s and new payment systems. And I wasn't alone. Many practitioners found themselves in my same circumstances across the country. And I quickly learned that my ability to help others as I had set out to do, was no longer something that I was able to do. And my ability to earn an income was impacted. And I also realized that to organizations, we were a line item. And I wanted to change that. So I did what I think other unemployed people oftentimes find themselves doing, and I decided to go back to school. So that's when I went back and got my post-professional doctoral degree to better understand the role of advocacy and policy and practice, because it was something that wasn't present in educational programs really prior. So I made it my professional goal to make sure that students coming out of educational programs knew how policy influenced practice and that OT practitioners in the workforce also understood that to influence practice, we needed to look at the policies that guided us and advocate for better policies to improve care for the clients that we were serving. And also to take a role of educating policymakers on what occupational therapy can do and the value that we bring to education settings, healthcare settings, and community settings as well. So in my doctoral work, I examined the history of advocacy in OT and The theme was prominent in our Sligo lectures, and yet it was absent from our textbooks, which was really interesting to me. 
And I'll admit I was surprised. So I think I thought I had stumbled on something that was really innovative with this idea that we need to be advocating as professionals. So yes, I was very green and clearly I was growing and learning every day. But when we look at our history and thread the stories together, advocacy has always been a very vibrant theme that emerged at different points in the profession and always was a precursor for our growth and expansion as a profession as we like extended to reach into new areas. Whether it was when we transitioned and, and began working in the medical model or began working in school systems, there was always advocacy that was a precursor to that. So my career as an advocate and a leader in advocacy really started the day I lost my job. I researched paths for OT to be involved at the proverbial tables in different sectors. I developed advocacy skills, and from there, my path emerged. And, and I'll say that the path was not something I had no idea what the path looked like. As doors opened, I walked through them, not because I had all the confidence in the world that I knew everything I needed to know for the position, but that I had confidence in myself that I could figure it out and learn it along the way. So I stepped forward to learn and use my expertise and voice to be able to share that we are more than a line item and that OT is an investment that can improve the daily lives of people and it's an investment worth making. And it's something that if somebody had told me, you know, that I would become an advocate and a leader in advocacy for our profession when I was sitting in those classrooms with my undergrad degree, I would have laughed at him and said, absolutely not. But, you know, it's, it's funny how things turn out and stepping forward to that challenge has really taught me a lot and I hope has left the profession in a better place. Well, that really brings our conversation full circle, you know, advocacy both for self, which of course you mentioned earlier is really where this all starts. And once we get comfortable there, expanding to advocating for our organization or our place in the organization and even on a larger scale, the profession. And of course, all those skills sort of build on each other as you've talked to us about during the, the time together that we've had. Tell us about a story where advocacy really paid off, where you got a chance to, after seeing the importance and the themes in the profession, you got to, to really put advocacy into action in a meaningful way in your professional experience. Yeah, you know, like I shared earlier, when I'm pitching an idea or a program, if if I receive that no, I automatically in my brain translate it to a no, not yet, or a no, not right now. So when I was an occupational therapist practicing in the schools, like many of the school-based practitioners today, I had a good side caseload, about 100 students who were spread out from early intervention all the way to high school. You know, our contact with students was oftentimes pretty limited, and I felt that there were gaps that we weren't able to get to because our caseload was being taken up by predominantly one thing. And I felt like the gaps of social-emotional learning and being able to better support transitions for students were not being able to be addressed because of some of these more prevalent issues. So specifically, handwriting. And I felt 
like a handwriting teacher on most days. Most of my, you know, students were, were handwriting referrals and even high schoolers who were being referred to me for handwriting. And if you've ever tried to fix a 15 year old's handwriting, you know, and back then, no offense, but to date myself, like computers weren't quite like they are now. So they weren't as, as prominent. So it wasn't like you could just throw them on, on a computer easily. So I started researching the issue and was really interested to learn that teachers, like elementary education teachers, were not actually taught handwriting or how to, they had no formal training on handwriting. So most teachers just taught handwriting like they learned it with when they were in school. So that meant like your kindergarten teacher could be teaching it very differently than the first grade teacher that these kids go into the following year which we know that lack of consistency is going to impact kids' abilities. So, you know, I started to dive deeper into it and looked at handwriting curriculums that were out there. I got training, I got certified, and then really worked to try and advocate with the district to adopt the curriculum. And I thought this was a completely logical solution. I had buy-in from my supervisor, my OT team members bought into the idea that we could expand beyond the handwriting referrals and be able to work on some of those gaps that we couldn't reach currently. Teachers were on board because they recognized the value of consistency with teaching handwriting the same for students. So we felt like we really had the buy-in, but the obstacle came with school administration who came with the philosophy of, if it's not broke, why fix it? The first time around when we pitched it. And so Keeping in mind that a teacher's version of what's broke or an OT practitioner's version of what's broke or even a student's version of what's broke looked very differently and it wasn't what resonated with the administration. So their concerns were logistical and they just didn't see the value. The message that worked for our teachers and my agency and the OT team did not work at all with the building administration. So one of the responses that we got was, why would you want to decrease your caseload and work your way out of a job? So we began, actually, we went, we stepped back and we uh, began tracking referrals for the social emotional challenges that students were having in the classroom that we couldn't reach due to staffing challenges. We tracked students who were receiving decreased scores in testing due to illegibility of their handwriting and the teacher not being able to read what they were writing. We tracked students who needed support for transitions from like elementary to middle school or middle school to high school or even like post-secondary transitions. And we tracked the benchmarks and outcomes that were of a concern to the administration specifically on how we could positively impact that with occupational therapy intervention. So ultimately collecting more data and then changing the conversation and speaking to what mattered to them directly is what actually led to the ultimate adoption of a handwriting curriculum. And it's a, it's a really good example of how the message that matters to us may not be the one that drives a decision maker. And so what message will best influence them and how can we align what we're seeking to what drives the decision maker is critical to advocacy and something that I learned firsthand in that experience. That's great. And with a little extra elbow grease, being able to go in and change the story that makes so much sense. And at the same time, we sometimes get lost in what's in front of us and what matters to us that it's hard to see 
what those pieces are that we need to pull into the conversation in order to really matter to the other stakeholders that are at the table. So wonderful example. Thank you again so much for the wisdom and stories that you shared with us today. We are down to just a couple minutes left together, which means it's time to head into one of my favorite (laughs) components of our talk, our rapid fire section, where we throw out some final opportunities for you to respond to a couple sentences as a summary of our conversation. So firstly, the future of OT is, what would you say? Right. I will always say bright. I've said that numerous times. It'll be of no shock to anyone, but I really really do truly believe that the future of occupational therapy is bright. And as we look at OT's distinct value, how is this best expressed within the profession? I would say that our distinct value is best expressed in our practice, the things that we do with clients each and every day, or the things that we do with organizations each and every day. So it's something that we not only articulate, but something that we equally demonstrate in our daily work. Occupational therapists are best positioned to be able to meet community needs in new and innovative ways. I believe that occupational therapists and occupational therapy assistants come with a lens that looks at the community differently than what may traditionally, you know, be kind of the the lens that it's often approached with. And I think we owe it to our communities to bring forward those ideas. And in order to press forward and create a culture of self-advocacy, we must step outside of our comfort zone. We need to be okay with not knowing everything when we jump in and saying, I'll learn it along the way. Great. Any final thoughts, Amy, as we we wrap up our discussion, anything that you would leave folks with as they're, you know, leaving this recording and and podcasts and going into work tomorrow, maybe with some refreshment and some renewed excitement. What are their next steps and and any other thoughts you want to share about self-advocacy? Yeah, you know, I think I would just say that, you know, one of the things that I would encourage people to do is to let some of those ideas that maybe they've put in that drawer come back out, open it back up, be willing to spend a little bit of time practicing some daily self-care and look at it as an investment in yourself. It's an investment in yourself so that you can take that idea and you can grow it and you can help think about how you can use it to be able to invest in others and ultimately have that practice that you love to go to every day and that you find fills that joyful spot in your heart when you think about your work. And so I hope that practitioners are willing and interested in being able to kind of do some of those important things, because I think it's really critical for for them personally, as well as for being able to take some of our ideas and new ways of looking at things into the communities in which we live and work and play today. 
Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure as always. Thank you for your thoughts and your really tangible strategies that we can all take forward to be better self-advocates for ourselves personally and for the profession. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been really wonderful to be with you today. Wow, you all, I hope you enjoyed learning from Amy as much as I did. She is such an inspiration when it comes to advocating for occupational therapy. And like I said at the beginning, there are just so many people out there that would benefit from occupational therapy. But making sure they are connected with the best care possible really requires advocacy from each and every one of us. So thank you again to Amy for bringing this topic into the spotlight today. If you are interested in earning a continuing education certificate for your time, what you are going to do next is head to otpotential.com and either sign in or sign up for the OT Potential Club. It is currently only $49 per year to have access to our occupational therapy courses and the many resources in the club. So if you are not already a member, I just highly encourage you to sign up today. And then once you're in the club, you can find this course under CEU courses and you'll be prompted to take a five question test. And if you earn 75% or higher, you will have a continuing education certificate sent to your inbox. Okay, that is all that we have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope that this podcast helps you broaden your knowledge, tweak your practice and stay evidence-based. Take care and we will talk to you next month.